Ann Gregg, and welcome to Invisible Women, a podcast about eight women who worked in espionage during World War II. They were from different countries, cultures, and backgrounds. What they had in common was the opportunity to step outside of societal norms while at the same time working in the shadows. And while their contributions were incredibly important, they've been hidden. Invisible Women is an opportunity to hear their stories, to explore their roles in society, and to discover what we can learn from their stories that's relevant today. I was decoding in the naval section. We replaced the men who had been decoding. When they needed more people, they had to take us women. At first, they thought women couldn't do it well enough, didn't have the intellect. Most of us had honours in mathematics. Our job was to locate the German ships and U-boats for the Allied forces. Once we had enough information about the location, the messages were collated and we sent out the information. I knew that meant that a boat would be sunk. I, I knew they were all young men. That's Garnet, a young woman who worked at the secret facility of Bletchley Park, decoding enemy messages, and then went on to be a courier in a Czechoslovakian resistance cell two types of spycraft that women were engaged in. That's the focus of this episode of Invisible Women, Spycraft. What is it about secrets that holds such interest for us generally? Why is it that what is hidden and in the shadows creates great curiosity and energy? And why were these women who were living ordinary lives pre-war thrilled by the work and circumstances that had such high stakes? Before I introduce you to Garnet's story, I'd like to talk about women's spycraft. By the way, I'm using the term spy interchangeably with agent and soldier. These women had roles in military and resistance operations that were motivated by patriotic intentions. In World War I, there was some intelligence gathering networks that forbade the use of the term spy because it suggested someone who was spying for various nefarious reasons. In regard to women specifically, the role of the woman spy in movies and literature has often been portrayed as either seductresses or virtuous virgins, reflecting the lack of information about these women and the societal misperception surrounding the woman agent or soldier. Why is espionage important? If we know what is secret to another country, we have knowledge of something that they have worked at to keep hidden. Intelligence gathering is about gaining knowledge and this knowledge is power. Spying is the first line of defense to protect a country's borders in an unstable world. Information gained in wartime has a direct impact on military planning, as you will witness through this episode in Garnet's narrative. References and the importance of spying can be found in the Bible and ancient and Greek and Roman history and Shakespearean plays. We know that sophisticated spying began about 500 years ago with the use of complex ciphers, but established intelligence agencies were not developed until the late 19th century. Briefly, in World War I, about 7,000 women were employed in British intelligence services. 
This is rather paradoxical as women who were trusted with state secrets were still not allowed to vote or hold political positions. Yet they worked in the UK, France, Belgium, and the US gathering intel and worked in areas of wartime intelligence networks. The actual stories of these women's employment in espionage as officers and clerical workers have been lost not only due to the secrecy of their duties, but because popular culture has envisioned them as the stereotypic vamps. But hardworking women of World War I were instrumental in the foundation of espionage in World War II and of the established 21st century intelligence agencies. Due to the recognition in World War I that women could provide valuable contributions through spying, and partly because of the shortage of men, women were recruited in World War II for espionage at home and behind the lines. Behind European lines, women gained access to the very foundation of the enemy's control by using European cultural norms to their advantage. The enemy's beliefs or projections about the roles women could perform were their undoing. These unexamined beliefs about women's capability, which is ingrained in us through cultural conditioning, allowed women agents to make inroads where male spies could not. Women who were asked to perform in dangerous territory were often parachuted into the area or escorted to the enemy line by a commando group. And they were recruited through existing military organizations. For example, in Britain, through the Women's Auxiliary Air Force, or the WAF. They were trained by the military, receiving the same lessons as men, for instance, in sabotage, how to build and use explosives, how to derail a freight train, how to use German guns, which may be obtained in capturing the enemy, how to train resistance cell members in weaponry and obstruct telephone lines, how to operate clandestine groups like the Marquis in the forests in France, how to use wireless radio equipment and to courier documents through German checkpoints, how to evade being captured, and if they were, how to retain their fake identity and to remain silent if tortured. If recruited at home or behind enemy lines, the women had to have knowledge of the territory, ability to endure hardship and perfect language skills. They had to be quick thinking, adaptable, and in good physical shape capable of walking or cycling for miles, and able to deal with the spontaneous and changing environment of war. Also, as you know, being selected, they had to have the courage and belief that they could do the work. So whether military or resistance cell women, they were treated in a similar manner by the enemy if caught carrying out any type of intelligence work. However, as you have heard in episode one, Edie mentioned that her name was not recorded in service zero documents, and therefore she was not picked up by the Nazis when the cell was infiltrated. Her name was kept off the record on purpose because she had a crucial job to perform. However, it was not unusual for women's names not to be recorded in resistance cell documents. They were not considered as integral to the resistance cell, even though they completed some of the most dangerous tasks. I also interviewed women in espionage who were undercover on the home front. The secret facility at Bletchley Park in the UK was initially composed of male intelligence officers, but when it was realized that far more people were needed, 
women who were employed by existing military units as errand girls, as they were referred to, translators and secretaries. But ones that had good math skills, for instance, were vetted and reassigned to Bletchley Park. Agreeing to do intelligence work, whether at home or on foreign soil, meant signing an official secrets act, which meant you could not reveal what your job was or its specifics to anyone, including family, friends, and even co-workers. What you did was secret, and it was to stay that way for 50 years. If you contravened the agreement, you would go to prison. So the stakes were high even when the intelligence work was on the home front. For instance, one woman at Bletchley Park told me that in order to do her job well, she would put herself inside the Nazi world of military movement. And as the war went on, she became adept at seeing this landscape through German eyes. And she also began using German words intermittently with English. That was fine inside her working hut at Bletchley Park, but it was imperative that it not slip out elsewhere due to the Official Secrets Act. Women mentioned that they were afraid they would talk in their sleep in their native language and or give away secrets. There were many, many women who worked from their home country in intelligence, including Canadian women agents who listened in to Japanese messaging on the West Coast. So many Allied women worked in intelligence in various countries and in numerous positions during World War II, and they were instrumental in helping the war effort. In this episode, I'll share the story of Garnet, a young woman who was brought up in the United Kingdom and volunteered for the war effort. Well, I joined up, naturally volunteering for the Women's Royal Naval Service. The Rents, as we knew it. Garnet worked on the home front at Bletchley Park for four years, and then she went on to a Czechoslovakian resistance cell. In 2005, I visited Garnet at her home on the Bristol Channel. The sun was shining, the seagulls were calling, and fishing boats clanging as I walked into her English garden across from the grey waters of the channel that day. Garnet answered the door with a bright smile and natural exuberance. Her white hair, while she mentioned it had blonde on the phone, was tossed about in animation as she told me to go ahead up the red carpeted stairs. Sitting down beside her on the sofa, she opened her photo album and began telling me her story with charm and humor. Years just seemed to fall away as her adventuresomeness shone through easily. I could ride a bike and drive a car, so soon I was taking dispatches to shipping in naval stations around Oxfordshire. We were in Northampton for a fortnight, learning to march and salute. We had galley duties, and we were issued navy denim overall dresses. I remember our heads being searched for lice and learning naval etiquette (laughs) and the squad drills marching, and domestic chores such as cleaning the kitchen floors. After basic training, I was sent to Oxfordshire and did the couriering of messages. But in 1941, I was signalled to go down to London. I wondered what I'd done. I had an interview with a fellow from intelligence who said, I see by your school certificate you were good at maths. 
We are looking for people for special duties X. You will have four days off every work period. I'm afraid I cannot tell you what it is. However, you'll be living in the country. Well, I was a country girl, so I said yes. After I passed the interview, I received notification from the Foreign Office to take the train and find a telephone kiosk at Bletchley Station and to ring a certain number and wait instruction. I got there in the night and there was a blackout. Well, there was wartime. There was another girl waiting. A sergeant in an enclosed van came along, checked our passes and drove us to the park. It was all very odd and secret. It was completely dark and quiet when we arrived, completely fenced in, but the next morning it was a small village of activity. The people walking about, coming and going. A few of us were ushered into a room and told that the work we would be doing at the park, Station X, was very important for the war, but that it was highly secret. And if we talked about it, we could even be imprisoned. I was asked if I could keep a secret. <laughs> What was I going to say? I signed the Official Secrets Act that I would not speak about my work for 50 years. At the time, I did not have a clue what I was signing or that it was for intelligence work or for MI5 or what exactly I would be doing. We learned first aid, how to be a rescue squad. We had a day of firefighting, gasping for air all day. If we were bombed, we had to be able to take care of ourselves because no one was going to come rescue us because the whole operation was a secret. One officer said to us, You have to be big, brave girls. After her recruitment and training, Garnet was assigned to one of the huts at Bletchley Park to work on the decoding machines. They were called bombs. Bomb with an E, that is. The bomb was an electromechanical device used to decipher enemy messages that were encrypted with the German Enigma machine. Security at Bletchley Park was ultra-tight. Garnet told me no one was allowed to even use the word Enigma. We couldn't talk about our work at all. There was a security talk given to newcomers every Sunday morning. Do not talk at meals. Do not talk in transport. Do not talk while traveling. Do not talk by your own fireside. Even in your own hut. We didn't know what each other was doing even in our hut or what each other might have found out. And we didn't go into other huts. We weren't allowed. If family asked, I'd say I was still doing my old job of running errands and changed the subject. I, I couldn't say where I was stationed. I heard there were a couple of women who were overheard talking about their work and they disappeared. It was drilled into us that if we talked, we may affect the outcome of the war and be in danger in all our lives. If anyone tried to guess what we were doing, we were always to say, no, it's not that, because someone may figure it out through elimination. The bombs were bronze-coloured cabinets. The front had rows of circular drums. We had to constantly clip and unclip the drums to put them in the correct order. We plugged in this mass of braided wires based on a complicated drawing of letters and numbers they sent to us. The backs of the machines were a mass of wires which we had to adjust with tweezers. Can you believe it? To keep them running well. 
And after you positioned everything, you turned the machine on and it kept spinning until it came to a stop. And then you loaded it again for it to run through another set of possibilities. But if it stopped suddenly, it meant that a code had been broken. Sometimes that did not happen for days. Do you know, by 1945, there were 2,000 of us working on the bombs. Most of us were Wrens. The main building was called the Mansion. It was an Edwardian-style home built by a financier. But we never went into the Mansion. Not allowed. We worked in large huts throughout the estate. I would walk over to my machine hut from the camp for our shift. There were a lot of grads among us sharing living quarters, which were not comfortable, and working together. Lifelong friendships were created, most from the naval service, and also women from the army and the air force. There were a lot of civilians, which made the ambiance freer than it would have been. Mostly ranks were ignored. Sometimes you had a corporal given an order to a major. We were all working long hours for one purpose. The people who lived in Bletchley thought we were ordinary wrens. They saw us going and coming out and they thought we were doing office jobs. They didn't know a thing about it. We did shorten the war. It was hard work, but it was worth it. I was decoding in the naval section. We replaced the men who had been decoding. So when they needed more people, they had to take us women. At first, they thought women couldn't do it well enough, didn't have the intellect. Most of us had honours in mathematics. But also, there were times in which you had to follow your instincts. It wasn't straightforward. We worked on the first computer that ever was, and we got menus up, and they would tell you which ones, and you would switch them on, and they would go on for days before you get the right code. But the machine stopped at the codes. I became head of my watch. It was hard work. Long hours. There was always the background noise of the machines. There was a large map on the wall that identified where the German U-boats and ships were located. Our job was to locate the German ships and U-boats for the Allied forces. Once we had enough information about the location, the messages were collated and we sent out the information. That was difficult for me. I knew that meant that a boat would be sunk. I, I knew they were all young men. Afterwards, I discovered that it was instrumental in the Battle of the Atlantic and other naval battles, but at the time, we did not know the big picture. At Bletchley Park, we were one big family. No friction. We worked hard. We played hard. We played tennis. Churchill saw what bad shape the courts were in and ordered them to be made right so we could use them. We had an excellent amateur dramatic society. They put on fantastic plays. Oh, the dances were fun. And there was a lake where some people would skinny dip in the early hours of the morning. Mostly men. We went to London when we kid and we danced all night. We didn't know what tomorrow would bring. We learned to be tolerant and thoughtful. I remember one night very clearly. I was on duty the night this code came in. I've got a thousand messages for you. And then it went dead.
We knew this SOE agent had been captured. He was our friend's fiance. I knew him well. We used to go on holidays together. He was with the SOE and dropped behind enemy lines. Well, he had to take cyanide. That's what the message meant. The SS threatened to kill everyone in the town if he did not comply with the order to give them intelligence information about the Brits. I was deeply affected by what happened to him. Later, when I discovered where he had been killed and that the town in Czechoslovakia had erected a plaque in his honour, I began sending flowers every year, which I do to this day. Well, the work made me more tolerant, compassionate, helped me grow up. I had to face things. Even afterwards, we learned things that were heartbreaking. The work was so secret at Bletchley. The Germans couldn't have any indication that we had broken their code. So when it was discovered through code breaking that Coventry and the cathedral there would be bombed, the people of Coventry were not warned. This was the way it was. The truth had to be protected. I didn't know this at the time, but I knew when U-boats were going to be bombed. War. I hate it. Of course, during the war, Garnet kept all of this to herself. She signed the Official Secrets Act, and she didn't talk about her work at Bletchley Park to anyone, not even family, for decades. We didn't talk about our work until it was made public and some women couldn't talk even after it was made public. We felt like traitors talking even after so many years. It was so ingrained in us. My husband never knew what I did. He died before the release of information in the 70s. You know, Churchill called us the geese that never cackled. <laughs> we were as honourable as the carrier pigeons, I guess. Our information came in all different ways. I saw the keeper one day carrying a pigeon towards the garage and then later one being let go from the loft. I discovered much later that these pigeons flew with some of the SOE agents parachuting into France and Germany. One was hurt on landing and another shot by Germans on its way home, but both made it back. Our messages came from many sources. When Germany fell and the war in Europe was over, Garnet went through another major transition in her life and espionage work. She went on to being another kind of agent, from decoding on the home front to being part of a resistance cell, helping high-level resistance fighters escape from Czechoslovakia. This was very dangerous work as the Russians were hunting for these fighters and her connection to them, if uncovered, meant certain torture and death. She had seen the carnage of war and the importance of espionage through her Bletchley Park work. She knew that organized resistance cell strategies were crucial to recovering freedoms, and she was driven also 
by the death of a good friend at the hands of the enemy. Garnet was not paralyzed by fear and anxiety of what may happen to her, but rather she was courageous and focused on believing in herself and her instincts. And yet the Russians were a different enemy than the Germans in the sense that they had women soldiers on the front lines, at least as far back as World War I. They did not hold the same cultural beliefs and projections around women and espionage. That is, they knew that soldiers, agents, and resistors could be women. Hence, they were more suspicious of women and less likely to let them slip through their checkpoints, making resistance work even more dangerous. As Garnet's work at Bletchley Park ended with the destruction of equipment and documents she'd been working on for four years, there was a shifting within her that led her to much more dangerous and a different kind of spycraft. We were told to destroy everything. We were given hammers to destroy the machines. Boy, did we do it. We beat the hell out of it. Boy, we just gave it. Also, there were bonfires. We dared not go out of the premises with papers. I was asked to help decode Japanese signals, and I went to Cambridge to learn Japanese naval codes, but I felt lost. I wanted to go on a retreat. But in 1946, I met a young man and went to Czechoslovakia with him. The Czechs had the Americans helping them, and they had more food there than we did in England, but the communists came in overnight. It was dreadful. The shooting of people and raping? Terrible. You couldn't believe it, really. There were mass demonstrations and political leaders and others left the country as quickly as possible. By 1948, we were behind the Iron Curtain doing undercover work, helping the resistance. Authorities knew I had been with the Royal Navy, so I had to report to the local police station weekly. I was not still with the Navy. I had followed my Czechoslovakian fiancé. His father was a dean of a school in Czechoslovakia. I travelled to Prague with him and stayed in the school's residence while I taught English. Well, they closed the English school I was working in like all the others. And there was no food my supervisor, another woman professor at the school, asked me to join the resistance cell. Many people needed to escape the harsh grasp of the Russians. I worked with her to help certain resistance members leave Czechoslovakia. Many of them were being picked up by the Russians and shot or jailed. I sent letters to my sister in the UK asking for her help. I wrote my sister in code as all my letters were being opened by the Czechoslovakian police. Eventually, I was able to give some resistance members foreign addresses to get away to. Then, I would collect their mail so no one knew they were gone. In fact, I'm still in contact with two survivors from that time. I helped them escape, and now they are in Sweden and Australia. Also, I gave them money. One was the woman professor's brother, but the resistance escapees could not take their valuables with them, so some asked me to bring out things for them when I left. Their documents, jewellery, some other articles of importance. 
I boarded the train wearing many, many rings. I wore gloves with the rings turned toward my palm, and that is the way I went through the border police. Thankfully, they never asked me to remove my gloves. Then, once in the train, I found an empty cabin with a bed where I stuffed the jewellery and the papers until the town of Ash, at which point I recovered the papers and the jewellery. I was to meet a contact at the town of Ash for a short rendezvous. I had my papers checked and I was questioned by the police as I left the train and I thought I might be detained, but they let me go. I met my contact and he said, Do you have a newspaper? Which was the sign. So I said, No, but you better take these. <laughs> and I gave him the jewellery and the documents from the pouch I'd sewn into my skirt band. I was so relieved. It was not easy to tell who was communist and who was not. I had to decide if the people who asked for help were authentic, or else I might have been thrown in jail. Once an agent was caught, the Russians were brutal. I skied, and I'd take those who asked for my help into the mountains with me to go skiing with my friends. I'd get to know them this way before I helped, but really, one never knew for certain whether they were authentic or not. I witnessed brothers who were on opposite sides of the political situation. Families would turn each other in. I went to Greece, where I obtained a job as a governess for the king's children. Oh, it was exciting. I travelled everywhere with them, and one day, when boarding a ship, I met my husband. He was standing alongside Lord Mountbatten. I was in Czechoslovakia from 1945 to 1948. The engagement did not last. I told him I could not stay in Czechoslovakia, and I got out just in time. Since then, he's married twice, and he visited my late husband and me regularly. If I had remained in Czechoslovakia engaged to him, I would not have met my late husband. And you know, lightning doesn't strike twice. I'm proud that we kept it secret all those years. When news came out about Bletchley Park, a radio station got my name from the records and called me. All of a sudden, I was on live radio and they were asking questions about my wartime work. I don't think I was very coherent as that was the first time I discussed it. It was such a shock after so many years. After that, I did get invited to a couple of functions in London, dinners, and spoke about it. And I have told those in the family who are interested. I have friends, although many have died. I see my niece and her family in London when possible. I try to enjoy life, not get bored. That was Garnet's story. 
as told to me in 2005. Eileen Barrett was the voice of Garnet. On the next episode of Invisible Women, I'll explore women through the lens of World War II Allied propaganda and how it was used to the cultural advantage of the day, that is, to keep men fighting and to keep women within traditional cultural mores, even though the norms were being stretched to include them in men's work. Women through the lens of Allied propaganda. That's coming up on the next episode. Please visit us on the web where you'll find additional information and resources. And I'd also like to invite you to leave any comments or questions you may have and subscribe to the newsletter. You can do that on the website at www.invisiblewomen.ca. This podcast is produced by Robert Wimet. I'm Diane Gregg. Thanks for listening. <laughs>